right. Well, for our sermon this morning, we're going to be in Genesis. <laughs> Don't worry, we're not going to read the whole thing. Uh, I'll be just reading some a few verses, um, and we'll go from there. But the the title of the message is "Foundational Questions and Answers." And we come to the book of Genesis this morning, hopefully from a much different perspective than we did a year ago today. Uh, hopefully we've learned some things, hopefully we've been impacted by God's word. And we think about this idea of a foundation and, and building upon a foundation. I don't know if any of you have been part of the process of building a house, whether you've built your own house or whether you've worked on a house. You have to start with a foundation, and you have to start with a foundation that is level and that is square, so that when you start to build the walls, that everything matches up, because when that doesn't happen, you get into a lot of trouble. So you start with the foundation, then the walls start to go up, then the flooring goes on, and then if it's a two-story house, another set of walls and another set of flooring or rafters, and and then the roof goes on, and then you, you start to close everything in, and then you start working on the inside, and it is a long process. It's a very involved process. But that first step is that step that most people don't even think about. It's the guys coming out with the excavators and digging and pouring the concrete, a lot of hard work that goes into that, and that firm foundation has to be there before you can start to build a house. Or kids, think about playing with Legos, right? If you're going to build a Lego house, you don't say like, oh, I'm just going to like build some roof and then I'm going to like start to build under it. No, you get out the flat piece, right? And you start putting pieces down. You start matching everything up, making sure it's square so that as you're going to build your house, things are going to line up and you're going to have that firm foundation. That's a very important step. So why is it important first to have that firm foundation, to have a foundation to ask questions from? That's one reason. And then to have a comprehensive understanding of that foundation. So why do we need to have the foundation to ask questions from and to have an understanding of that foundation? I think one of the reasons is that because life is hard, right? Life throws a lot of curveballs at us. And we all have questions, we all have things that we wrestle with, we all want answers to the questions that we have in life. And everyone around us, whether they admit it or not, everyone is seeking answers to life's deepest questions. Everyone's basically asking the same questions in life, even if they're trying to avoid asking them or trying to find answers to them. So where do we go as believers, where do we go to answer life's deepest questions. For some people, uh, we go outwardly. We might go to tradition. Uh, We might go to family. Uh, Hopefully, we're not going here as Christians, but people will go to things like horoscopes or tarot card readers, right? Trying to find answers, trying to probe into unseen realms, right? Or we may turn inwardly. We may become self-focused and focus on self-actualization, I saw a Facebook post earlier this week from a childhood friend of mine. It said, newsflash, your good behavior, good behavior won't bring you what you want. Your self-worth will. And I had to read that like five times because I still don't even understand what he's trying to say. That your self-worth will bring you what you want. But listen to some of the comments on his post. 
oh yeah, baby, trust the universe is always giving you exactly the love, capital L, you need to expand and be completely happy. Okay? Another comment. Indeed, and the good vibes that vibrate out from that. Okay? I don't, yeah, I'm like, I'm glad you're happy, but like, I don't get what you're even saying, man. Like, that's not helping me out, right? There are endless options and endless philosophies out there in our day and age that people turn to, right? The universe, capital U, universe, capital L, love, like whatever that even means for people. Well, is the Bible just another option among a bunch of other options? Or, as is increasingly the argument, is the Bible the cause of oppression and judgment in our world? Is this the reason why there's so much racism and bigotry in our world? Because people still believe in this? Not trying to pick a fight this morning with our secular friends. But I am trying to argue that God has revealed himself to humanity. He's revealed himself in a couple ways. The first way we call general revelation. He's revealed himself in creation. We see it, obviously, in Genesis. We see it in Romans chapter 1 where Paul makes the argument that nobody can deny God's existence because creation reveals who he is. We see it in special revelation that God has revealed in his word the person and work of Christ, who he is and how we can be saved from our sin. We preach through the Bible. I don't just get up here and give inspirational speeches. That is not my forte anyways. If you want that, go to like TED Talks or something. There's people that are way more qualified to do that. Our main idea this morning and kind of wrapping up Genesis is that God's word is our only authority and the only foundation that we can stand upon to ask and attempt to answer life's most challenging questions. Let me say that again. God's word is our only authority and the only foundation that we can stand upon to ask and attempt to answer life's most challenging questions. And I think if we're willing to listen, not to me, not to my interpretation of the scriptures, if we're willing to listen to God, the Holy Spirit, speaking through the scriptures, pointing us to Jesus, even here in Genesis which has been kind of one of our main objectives throughout this series, right? If we're willing to do that, we might find that some of the questions that we have maybe aren't as challenging or as difficult as we thought and we made them out to be. And I'm not trying to minimize some of our questions. I'm not trying to say that there's not mystery because there is. There's a lot. (laughs) There's a lot of things we don't know. But I want to say that God has spoken sufficiently God has spoken sufficiently in his word. He's giving us, he has given us everything we need to know to know him and to be saved from our sins. We don't need to go anywhere else. We don't need to to go to, to gurus or new interpretations of things. He's given us everything we need. So we're going to ask three essential questions this morning and look at how Genesis provides a foundation for answering and understanding these three questions. So if you're taking notes, you can jot them down. They're, they're pretty short. First, who is God? Second, who are we? Third, 
What is our hope? Let's start with the first question. Who is God? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is eternal. God is the creator of all things. He created the cosmos. He created humanity. We're going to see a little bit more about that in the next section. And then he created his people. He created the nation of Israel. When he called Abraham out of paganism to be to belong to him and to be the father of, of many nations, God, he didn't create that out of nothing, but in a sense, he did. Because in the New Testament, in Romans 4 and Hebrews 11, Paul and the author of Hebrews, if you don't believe it's Paul, uh, both make the claim that Abraham was as good as dead and God gave him a son. So when God allowed the promise to be fulfilled to Abraham, it's as if he created something out of nothing, right? Because Abraham was dead. There was nothing there. And God said, the promise is going to be fulfilled because I'm going to do it. A hundred years old, you're going to have a son, okay? So God is the creator. He's also the judge. And we've seen that many times throughout Genesis. Chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sin against the Lord, they're cursed and they're kicked out of the Garden of Eden. We'll see a little bit more of that later too. The flood in chapters 6 through 9. God pronounces judgment and the whole world except Noah and his family are killed. In, um, sorry, uh, Tower of Babel, God scatters the people as they're trying to build this tower and they're trying to make a name for themselves. God pronounces judgment. So he's the judge, but he's also the redeemer and the deliverer. Chapter 3, although there's the curse, in the midst of the curse, there comes a promise. In the flood, he gives the covenant and the promise that he will not wipe out the earth again. So he's showing that he is the redeemer and the deliverer. In chapter 15, when he tells Abraham that his descendants will be slaves in a foreign land, that they will be afflicted for 400 years, he gives the promise that I will bring them up. And we've seen that in the last few weeks. That promise is repeated to Jacob and to Joseph. God is the provider for his people. We saw that primarily in chapter 22 where God provides the ram in the place of Isaac for the sacrifice. And then God is a personal God. The the covenant name, if you look in your English Bible, L-O-R-D, all capital letters, that is the name Yahweh. It's the covenant name that God revealed himself to his people. And especially it's it's revealed more fully in Exodus chapter 3 when God comes to Moses and he says, I am who I am. He says that that is his name, I am who I am. And that promise that goes along with that name is the promise that I will be with you. That is one of the main covenant promises that God made. We saw that again with Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. So where should we go for the answers to life's deepest questions? We should go to this God, right? The one who started it all. The one who can and will end it all one day. Time will come to an end. Human history will come to an end. 
the flood was a foreshadow of that coming judgment. One day, all things will be wiped out and started over. God will recreate new heavens and a new earth. He's the one who promises to deliver his people, and he provides the means for that deliverance. Again, that was prefigured in the ram in the place of Isaac. So we have all of these promises. We have all of these things. Why on earth do we go and run to other things to look for answers to our questions? We have this great God who has shown himself, who has revealed himself to us. Why would we run somewhere else? But we're all guilty of this, aren't we? Like the Israelites at Mount Sinai. Moses says, wait here. I'm going to go up on the mountain. Don't touch anything or you're going to die if you do. I'm going to go up. I'm going to get a message from God, right? Moses goes up on the mountain. There's, they witness thunder, lightning, a thick cloud, smoke, and fire. All of these things represent God. Like, you think one of those would have been enough, right? Like, Moses goes up on the mountain, all of a sudden there's all this, like, crazy lightning. You think if you were down below, you'd be like, okay, something's happening. This is really important, right? Well, Moses is up there meeting with the Lord, getting the Ten Commandments, and the people are like, hey, Aaron, what's going on with your brother? Why is he taking so long? Let's, let's do something here, right? So they make their own God, right? They make the golden calf. They violate the first and second commandment before they even get them. But that's us too, right? God, why are you taking so long? I mean, 40 days? Come on, really? 400 years for God's people in slavery? 400 years waiting for Christ to come at the end of the, New Te- end of the Old Testament? Most of us, we can't even sit still for 40 minutes, Right? This is a painful and sobering reminder of who we are. But thankfully, it's not all bad, okay? We need to keep it in perspective. Who are we? The good, the bad, and the ugly, okay? The good, the bad, and the ugly. When I was in uh, junior high, I had a t-shirt, the good Packers logo, The bad, Bears logo. The ugly, Cowboys logo. Which was very fitting then because the Cowboys dominated the Packers uh, throughout most of the 90s. And that's really funny, but it's kind of a subjective interpretation, right? Like, maybe the ugly is the Seahawks now or somebody else, but that's subject to change. But describing humans as good, bad, and ugly is something that comes right from God's word. It comes right from God's revelation. What is the good? The good is Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the good is that we're made in his image. 
We're made male and female. We're made to mirror God. And this picture of complementarity and and marriage is seen in chapter 2, verses 18 and then 23 to 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Made in God's image. Men and women made to complement one another, to point to the creator. Back to chapter 1, to be fruitful and multiply, 128. To fill the earth, to have dominion over the earth. These are good things. These are blessings that we have from God. And as Christians, we better know what we believe about these things. And we better know where we stand on these issues. And be prepared to give a defense. Why do I say that? We live in a world that is increasingly confused on issues of gender and sexuality, on issues of male and female roles. If you look at any major headlines from the last month, a majority of them are related to these issues. There's all of the things that are going on with the abortion things in New York and Virginia, headlines about sexuality and people just asking questions all over the place, things about marriage. And in the, our, the increasing hostility of our culture, people say things, or even if they don't use these words, their, their attitude is, how dare Christians actually believe and practice what they believe, <laughs> right? How dare you actually say you believe the Bible and then really believe it, really believe that it's true? I stand up here today knowing that there might come a day where I could be arrested for saying the simple things I'm saying, that God made man and woman in his image and that marriage is between a man and a woman. Like that could be called hate speech and I could get thrown in jail for that, which sounds insane to us, right? But it could happen. But it's not just me. I'm not just concerned for myself. I really don't care, honestly, but I'm not concerned just about that situation. I'm concerned for all of us, right? in our workplaces, in the classroom. I'm not arguing that we should become this militant people who just run around Bible thumping and yelling at everybody and telling them why they're wrong and why they're going to hell. But I am saying that we should not be silenced by a culture that wants to shut God out, that wants to say, well, there's no place for that anymore, (laughs) that wants to rewrite 2,000 years of Christian history and 2,000 years of Orthodox Christianity. We're not the ones trying to stir anything up. We're, just try, we're saying, this is what the church has always believed and always proclaimed. Like, we're not trying to cause trouble. I think we need a winsome boldness to speak God's truth in our culture in this day and age to a generation that wants nothing to do with God's truth. We need to do the hard work of building relationships and engaging people on these issues and showing people, like, look, there's 
there's a legitimate reason why I believe. Like, I'm not just crazy. I'm not just this Bible-thumping bigot, right? Like, this is what Christians have always believed. And when you can build a relationship with somebody and, and start to do that, those conversations will happen. But if you just come out guns blazing right away in this day and age, I don't think that's going to work too well. Okay. So this leads us, kind of where we're at in our culture and in the world, to the bad. Why this rejection of God and his ways? In chapter 3 of Genesis, again, the narrative of Adam and Eve falling into sin, being kicked out of the garden. And then later in chapter 6, we read these words, chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. This is really an undoing of the creation, right? It's, it's a wiping out everything that God had already done. And this shows how bad the problem had gotten. Again, in, at Babel, people are scattered. And then we see God's people. We see them wandering. We, see, we saw Jacob fleeing from Esau, his brother, free, fleeing from Laban, his uncle, and then fleeing from God. So all throughout Genesis, it's, it's, it's a bad picture of the human condition. And it's also ugly. We looked at some really difficult passages. A lot of the ugliness is related to sexual sin. We saw that in chapter 18 and 19 with Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot and his daughters in chapter 19. The defiling of Dinah in chapter 34. Judah and Tamar in chapter 38. And then Potiphar's wife and Joseph in chapter 39. All of this, this badness and this ugliness leads us to ask the question, how can we get right with God? How can we get back into a relationship with God when we have messed things up? What are the answers that the world wants to give? It's like my friend's Facebook post, right? Just self-worth. Just feel good about yourself and everything in your life will just come into order. Or be a good person, right? Just do good things. Be nice to people. Don't murder. Don't steal, right? If you, if you can keep those two, like, things will be pretty good. Give back, right? Make up for the mistakes that you've made in your life. Get some of that good karma flowing, right? But what's the problem with all these things? What's the measuring stick, right? How do we determine what's good enough? We have this picture of the scales of judgment, right, in a lot of other religions. How can you objectively know, how can you know how much bad you have done in order to know how much good you need to do to make up for it? And when do you stop? And when do you get off that treadmill of self-salvation? You can't, right? It's impossible. The answer from Genesis 6, 5, that the Lord saw the wickedness of man that was great in the earth, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
And then the answer that Paul gives in Romans chapter 5 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is that in Adam all die, right? We're dead in our sin. We're born dead. Ephesians chapter 2. We call this total depravity. And it sounds really bad. And it, it is bad. But it doesn't mean that you're always as bad as you possibly could be. And that you always do the worst possible thing. But it means that at your core, you don't have the ability to do righteousness. You don't have the ability to be right with God and to make up for all the sin that you've done. You can't do it on your own. The Bible uses language like righteousness and justification and judgment. And people don't like these words and they don't like this language. So they try to reinterpret the scriptures through other lenses. But you can't read the Bible and get away from this idea. And it all starts in Genesis. It starts with the fall and then it's pictured throughout all these things that we've been talking about. If you want a passive and a tame deity who's going to tell you what you want to hear and what makes you feel good, then leave this on the shelf, okay? Don't open it because it's not going to give you those answers. But if you want to know God and you want to have your sins forgiven, then pick it up and read it. And don't just skip right to the New Testament because someone said, go read the Gospel of John first, which I'm not opposed to reading the Gospel of John first. But start in Genesis. Tell people to start in Genesis. Some of you guys know uh, Kennedy Filer. She is usually here once a month worshiping with us. In July of 2017, she sent me a text, and she was asking a question about some obscure passage in Isaiah, and there was some reference to water, and, and I had to go and look it up, and it was, it was a reference back to the Exodus, and so I just said, oh yeah, it's you know, something about the Exodus. She's like, oh, you mean in Egypt? And then I started kind of like digging in, and I was like, I was realizing she didn't really like understand kind of the backstory, and so I was like, you, really, you should go back and read, at least, at least read Genesis and Exodus. If you're going to read the rest of the Old Testament, there's so much that Genesis and Exodus are foundational if you're going to understand those things. So I said, you know, I'd encourage you to go back and start in Genesis. I, I said, you don't have to read through the whole Bible if you don't want to, but it's, it would be really helpful. Well, she just sent me a message on New Year's, I think it was New Year's Eve or New Year's Day, just this past New Year's. And she said, I just finished reading through the whole Bible cover to cover. And just to see her excitement. And, and again, it wasn't like, okay, you got to check off the boxes, Kennedy, so you can be a good Christian. But, like, go read your Bible. I don't care if it takes you three years to read it cover to cover. Just read it. Get in God's word. Understand how, especially, we've been talking about this in Genesis, right? How do these things point us forward to Christ? How does the understanding of what God has done and been faithful to his people, how does that encourage us today as the people of God? We can't miss those things. We need to see and, and go to God's word so we can see those things. So Genesis, we've been saying, it, it points us to Christ. There's, there have been these signs all along the way. Some of them are very obvious. Uh, some of them are a little less obvious. But these signs all point us forward and help us to answer our final question. And that is, what is our hope we see it prefigured specifically. I'm going to look at five places in Genesis. The first is Genesis 3.15. Fancy word, if you want to write this down, is the proto-evangelium. P 
P-R-O-T-O-E-V-A-N-G-E-L-I-U-M, okay? If you want to impress your friends at a party or something. Proto-evangelium. What does that mean? It means the early gospel, right? Or the first gospel. Well, what is that? How is there a gospel in Genesis? Genesis 3, I'll start in verse 14. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first promise in the Bible that specifically points us forward to Christ. And it's right after the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. So the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. That's the first one. The second one, I think, is in the flood, right? The ark is a picture of salvation. It's a picture of God saving his people from judgment, from the waters of judgment. There is that safety for Noah and his family inside of the ark. The third picture is the regathering of scattered people. So at the Tower of Babel, the people are scattered all over the place. And then God calls one man. He calls Abraham. He says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. So there's kind of this regathering of the scattered people. And we see that pointing us to Christ. The fourth is the substitute ram in uh, chapter 22, where God substitutes the ram in the place of Isaac I'm going to read Genesis 22, 12 through 14. The angel of the Lord says to Isaac, Do not lay your hand to uh, Abraham, sorry. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. All of these things point us forward to Jesus. Jesus is the one who crushes the serpent's head. Go read the book of Revelation That's what the whole book is about. Jesus defeating Satan. Jesus is the ark of our salvation who saves us from judgment and destruction. Jesus gathers a scattered people. That's what we are, the church. The called out ones. We're called out from this scattered world to be his people. But we're still sojourners and exiles in this world. 1 Peter chapter 2. Jesus is the substitute lamb. He is the lamb that Isaac, the ram in the place of Isaac, pointed forward to. And Sorry, I didn't say the fifth one. The substitute ram. The fifth one before was Joseph saving the people from famine. That points us to Jesus because Jesus provides living water and he is the bread of life. He is the answer to our spiritual famine. I want to focus on these last two for a minute. The first one, that Jesus is the Lamb. I want to read from J.C. Ryle's commentary on John chapter 1. 
this is where John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Ryle says, He was the true Lamb which Abraham told Isaac at, Mount, at Moriah God would provide. He was the true lamb to which every morning and evening sacrifice in the temple had daily pointed. He was the lamb of which Isaiah had prophesied that he would be brought to the slaughter. He was the true lamb of which the Passover lamb in Egypt had been a vivid type. In short, he was the great propitiation for sin which God had covenanted from all eternity to send into the world. He was God's lamb. Let us take heed that in all our thoughts of Christ, we first think of him as John the Baptist here represents him. Let us serve him faithfully as our master. Let us obey him loyally as our king. Let us study his teaching as our prophet. Let us walk diligently after him as our example. Let us look anxiously for him as our coming redeemer of body as well as soul. But above all, let us prize him as our sacrifice and rest our whole weight on his death as an atonement for sin. Let his blood be more precious in our eyes every year we live. Whatever else we glory in about Christ, let us glory above all things in his cross. This is the cornerstone. This is the citadel. This is the rule of true Christian theology. We know nothing rightly about Christ until we see him with John the Baptist's eyes and can rejoice in him as the lamb that was slain. And then the bread, he saves us from famine. We're going to come to this table in a minute and we get a picture of that. We get a picture of the rescue that we have because of Christ. The lamb who was slain and the bread of life. Well, this has been, for me uh, at least, this has been an amazing journey going through the book of Genesis. It's been a joy to walk through it with all of you as we've been talking about it in community groups. But this is just the beginning. Pun totally intended. By God's grace, let us continue to build upon this foundation. Let us continue to seek him through his word. Let us continue to seek answers to questions in light of the truths that we have received and the truths that we have rehearsed here this last year. Let us see Jesus in all of the scriptures as people who know and trust our God, who know ourselves accurately and honestly, and who believe in and live out the hope of the gospel in a world that is desperate for the hope that Jesus alone has to offer. And again, we have an opportunity to do that as we come to the table this morning. As we come to remember the lamb who was slain for us. To remember the one who said, I am the bread of life. He is the living water, right? If we drink from him, we will never thirst. If we eat from him, we will never hunger again. So we have an opportunity this morning to to rehearse that, to retell that story as we come to the table. This table is open to anyone who has professed faith in Christ. Anyone who is a Christian is willing or is, is welcome to come to this table. 
Uh, if you're not yet a Christian, we would ask that you would refrain and that you would not take the elements at this time. Uh, if I could ask those who are serving to come forward at this time. <laughs>